This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. Welcome tonight to the School of Journalism. Um, we have a rare opportunity to hear about national security and foreign policy making in the Trump administration, which is very much a dark hole to most mortals and to most people in the Trump administration as well. Um, you know, we, we, following the news cycle uh, nowadays is like having your head in a uh, bass drum, boom, 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 Trump every day uh, without stop. Um, it is easy to forget uh, if you're following the doings uh, and the excitements and the insults and the uh, turns of phrase and everything else uh, that Trump is orchestrating, that very large things are going on uh at the horizon of American power, arguably a system set up after the Second World War uh, based on alliances in uh, Europe and Asia is transforming itself, arguably coming to an end or at least transforming itself into something else. Uh, if we look at the border of those areas of power uh, in Ukraine, uh, a hot war is going on between the Ukrainian government and Russian-backed rebels. If we look at the border of Asia, we have a nuclear power in North Korea uh, and an aggressive China in the South China Sea that's casting considerable doubt on American defense guarantees in Northeast Asia and, of course, the Middle East um, uh, and an expansive Iran, as the Trump administration would call it, uh, and certainly hot wars in Syria, Yemen, uh, Somalia and elsewhere. So fires are burning everywhere, uh, and they rarely reach the front page. Uh, we are, it seems to me, extremely uh, privileged tonight and lucky uh, to have a reporter uh, who is up to her neck in the foreign policy making uh, of uh, the Trump administration and can describe it to us in its dailiness and its, to use her word, weirdness. Um, I'm very honored to introduce Nahal Tusi. Um, uh, she was uh, born in Iran, came to the United States at six as a refugee, uh, was raised in Texas, was valedictorian of her high school class, went to UC, uh, sorry, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she worked for the student newspaper as editor uh, and writer. Uh, she then served on the Milwaukee uh, Journal Sentinel. Uh, where she covered higher education and also very interested from then till now in refugee issues. She managed to report also from Iraq, uh, South Korea, Germany, and Thailand. Uh, she then joined the AP, where she was based in Kabul, Islamabad, New York, and London. Uh, and finally, now she is a uh, national security and foreign affairs reporter for Politico. She has covered the Rohingya genocide. Uh, she was in Abbottabad uh, the day after Osama bin Laden was killed. Uh, she has written about, among other things, the Trump administration's so-called new human rights policy. Uh, her work, if you Google it, repays close attention, as I have just paid it these past couple of days. Um, she has just come from speaking to my class very eloquently, and I am delighted to introduce her to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And I just want to be very clear that despite what Google says, I am not 105 years old. Um, but that is what it says if you Google my name. It's fabulous. You look very good. <laughs> I'm owed a lot of birthday presents as I they tweeted about that. Um, and by the way, you have an amazing memory because you just like said all that. I, you know. <laughs> I, I can't remember anything unless I like write it down. So I'm just... <laughs> um, 
so I'm just going to talk for a little bit and then, you know, open it up to any and all questions. I, I prefer the Q&A sections on these things all the time. So please feel free to ask me anything, including stuff that I didn't mention in, in these notes. Um, but I want to take you guys back to the, the first week of the Trump administration, right? Um, and it's like, it's a, it's a Thursday. He'd been inaugurated January 20th. So this is like January 26th. And I get a call from a source of mine at the State Department. And he's like, I need to give you something. Can you please meet me at this, like, coffee shop, right? And I'm like, "Ah, okay, fine. You know, like, I was a little busy, but all right. So I get there, and he gives me what's a draft of the travel ban, what some people know as the Muslim ban. And I look at it, and he's like, look, somebody, you know, from the White House gave this to me. I thought you should look at this. I thought you should do something with it. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, Okay, sure. And it's not it's not quite hitting me. And I, I knew there were like reports that they were talking about some sort of a ban. And it was but I was like, okay, okay. And I look at it. And the guy, he's like, look, it's effing crazy. Okay, like this is he's like, this is nuts. I was like, okay. So then I go back to the office and I coordinate with a colleague who actually herself had managed to obtain a draft like coincidentally. And I'm reading this, this draft of the ban. And I'm not a lawyer. But it was clearly, like, just problematic on multiple levels. I mean, I, I was just like, ooh, I don't think that's going to work. So, of course, we put together this story because we have the story and we have the draft, and it got pretty prominent placement. But the whole time in my head, I'm thinking, this is never going to become a reality. The lawyers are going to stop this. <laughs> I was like, this is just can't. It just can't become a reality. The, the lawyers will never allow this, right? The next day, Trump signs it, and... I'm starting to get increasingly like, wait, what's really happening? Of course, we alert it. We, they took forever between him signing it to actually send out the, the, the uh, text. So we're waiting, and then it comes, and it's almost identical to the draft that we had the, day, the previous day. And I'm starting to think, oh, this, is, this is even bigger than I thought, but still, how is this real? I mean, I know he signed it, but is it really going to take effect, right? I talked to a colleague of mine who specializes in like legal coverage, and he points out stuff that I didn't even think about. Like, uh, does this affect dual nationals? Does it affect legal permanent residents? And I was like, I, I don't even know. Um, so then I go to the editors, and I, I'm like, look, guys, I think this is a big deal. I think this is a bigger deal than we realize. And they're like, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah. And I was like, you know, I'll try to write a follow-up story tomorrow about it. And they're just like, okay. I mean, and I was like, and I was like, look, I think it's a big deal because, like, for instance, you know that high-level Politico executive we have in Brussels? Well, she's Iranian French, and this means she can no longer enter America. Like, that's why I like explained to them. And they were like, oh, okay. But again, it's still not really fully hitting us. It's still not there. Saturday morning. I start writing what I, I think is like a big analysis piece about the potential implications of this, including the possibility that other countries will, you know, act recipro- reciprocally as they mm-hmm. usually are supposed to do and like ban Americans. Like this could really screw up a lot of different things. Um, and in the meantime, my two of my colleagues who also sort of covered these issues um, started like pinging me like, hey, hey, like there's a there's, you know, um, these people, these like Iraqi refugees who are not being allowed to come in, they've just reached the airport. There's like a lawsuit being filed. It starts to like snowball and like all this stuff starts happening. And as I call sources and people and legal experts, it's very clear that people inside the government and outside it, they themselves did not fully understand what was happening. Like they were like, we're still trying to figure this out. But at the same time, as we all know, they were already enforcing it. By that night, I mean, my, my two poor colleagues ended up spending the whole day writing their own legal aspects of the story with the court cases. I'm writing this big analysis. That night, the protests break out across the airports. And so I'm writing a big story about that. By the next day, basically half of Politico's staff is somehow working on this story. Wow. We had reporters heading to Dulles Airport. I mean, it was wild. Everybody's like, what is going on? And I'm sure you guys kind of remember that, right? But the thing that really just gets me about that when I look back is that we were all thinking inside the box. We were thinking, this can't happen because mm-hmm. there's safeguards against this. There's supposed to be a process. There's supposed to be people. There's supposed to be lawyers who vet these things who say, no, 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 you can't do this. 
And yet the Trump administration came in and they took the box and they set it on fire. There was no more box. Um, so I guess the one thing, and, and I, I wish, I honestly wish I could say that, that I learned my lesson that day and from then on I knew to always be on the lookout for the, the wacky and the insane and the things that are just not normal. Um, but I got to tell you, even to this day now, more than three years later, they do things. And my immediate instinct is, well, they can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have to train myself like, wait, wait, come on. You've reported on this. You know that they're going to do this. Um, so, you know, the key lesson for me was, you know, don't assume that anything in Washington, D.C. is permanent. Not a norm, not a rule, not a law, and definitely not an institution. So you take all this and, and you have to remember that when you look at everything that has happened, everything from the story that I, I would have – I'm not saying I would have murdered someone to get to this story, but I would have considered it, which is Trump <laughs> wanting to buy Greenland. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> like I was so upset that I didn't get that story. Um, to uh, taking children away from – their parents at the border and locking them up by the thousands. It's just mm-hmm. so we we are going through this this kind of talk is titled myths of national security reporting and but the myth really I think is that is that again that anything is permanent, that anything is not doable. Today we have reports of Ken Cuccinelli basically refusing to leave the Department of Homeland Security, even though a court has ruled that he was not legally appointed to this position. The courts, everything, these institutions are not, they're not holding. Um, And whether it's through people leaving, people being fired, or frankly, people just being too scared to fight back anymore um yeah it's things are things are very much degrading and i feel like i feel like i can say that as an objective journalist you know who i objective you know we we can have a discussion about objectivity but i try to be fair i try to be fair-minded you know looking at all of that but i think the analysis is very obvious and these things are collapsing and i i don't know i don't know how how long they can go before it totally, totally falls apart. Um, so jumping to a couple of other things, you know, I, I asked some other reporters about some myths of national security reporting. Some of my friends at other papers and elsewhere, and they, they mentioned a few, but I think it's partly because, you know, they have their own egos. And um, one, one of the things they said was that, you know, the people readily talk to us. Most don't. Most rat us out. <laughs> so even now, even under the Trump administration where there have been way more leaks than normal, there have been way more, um, you know, contacts with the press among people within the government institutions, um, most people still, they don't want to talk to a reporter. We're, we're not, like, sitting there, like, you know, easily getting anyone to talk to us. I can, for every 10 people I reach out to, you know, nine ignore me or like immediately tell the PR person in their agency. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard. Um, usually, you know, there's no, I, there's not really these magical leaks. Um, usually it's the painstaking process of talking to people, digging, persuading people to talk to you and just noticing things that, um, are different or unusual or odd, like things that people don't even realize that they're giving away when you're talking to them. Um, if, if there is a leak, and there's a difference between a scoop and a leak, right? So a lot of what we're getting are, are scoops. Um, but sometimes, you know, this administration, like any other, does have its own way of leaking a story. They do talk to certain media outlets um, more than others. Um, and my my experience is that they often uh, leak to the reporter that's like least likely to question the information that they're giving them, right? Um, so I'll give you an example. Recently, uh, the Trump administration 
announced the members of what it's calling the International Religious Freedom Alliance. Uh, This administration has made religious freedom a major human rights priority, arguably really its only human rights priority. I mean, they that's the one th- issue that they're big on. Uh, and it, it happens to be very convenient for them politically because um, Christian evangelicals have a lot of concern about persecution of Christians overseas, which unfortunately there's a lot of. Um, and so it works for their base, um, and it's an issue that they can, they can use. Uh, so I asked for, I said, look, I want, I, I was like, look, I cover religious freedom more than like pretty much really any other major reporter, and I want the exclusive on who's going to be on the alliance. And I can be really pushy. Um, you know, I just say, I want this. I think you should give this to me. Um, and they were like, they actually were like, yeah, you know, maybe we'll think about it, whatever. And then they, they didn't give it to me. Um, and I was like, what? And then finally, like, when they announced it, it barely got any coverage, really. But I, like, I got the list eventually. And Hungary was on the list. Poland was on the list. Like, these are, like, countries that have had some recent serious religious freedom crises. Um, Hungary's government goes around, like, you know, pursuing conspiracy yeah. theories about George Soros. Um, so I actually did, like, a big Twitter thread. Like, you know, I, I found the – I used their State Department's own um, human, uh, human rights reports and religious freedom reports to point out, like, the issues with all of these countries in this list. And I realized, mm-hmm. of course, they weren't going to, like, give me this leak uh, because I, I would call out the strangeness of this. Um, so another another myth uh, is, as Trump often claims, that reporters make up anonymous sources. Um, we don't really need to. <laughs> there are a lot of people who, who do want to talk to us. Uh, I know that sounds a little bit odd in terms of what I said earlier, but it is a combination. There's more people who want to talk, but most who still don't. Um, we don't really need to, uh, but we totally understand the reason to give these people anonymity because their jobs are at stake. Um, but yet it can be held against us. Oh, these are just anonymous leaks. And my favorite thing, though, is like this administration, they complain about the anonymity, but then they hold background briefings all the time with unnamed mm-hmm. senior administration officials. And that's the only way you're allowed to participate is if you agree to that ground rule. Um, one you know, myth I think that increasingly people are realizing, and I think Trump has accelerated this, um, is that national security is really about military and crime. It's really about those like physical security issues. Um, And I think what we're learning increasingly is that it's about the economy. It's about cyber issues. It's about climate. It's about migration. It's about the coronavirus, right? You have all these different areas of coverage in the past journalists that that are increasingly blending. Um, And Trump, because of his background as a businessman who has all these interests and Mm -hmm. uh, financial interests, all these things that are just never really have come to the fore before for a president, you know, he is leading to some very unusual byline combinations (laughs) at various news organizations. I mean, you're seeing like the the business reporter who's never before worked with David Sanger of the New York Times and suddenly they're like in a byline. I remember I really got shocked and I used the New York Times as an example because everyone reads it. Um, But once uh, there was a quintuple byline on a New York Times story and I have never seen that before in my life Um, because and this is a paper that used to only allow like no more than two bylines because, you know, it didn't credit everybody that, that worked for it, but that worked on a piece. But this was, you know, just shows you the kind of synergy, I guess you could say, that's been forced by this administration. I mean, I'm having to work with our health reporters. It's because mm-hmm. we're realizing these things are all coming together. So it's not just about war and it's not just about the FBI or whatever. It's all these other things that have to work together. And Strangely enough, though, it's coming at a time during an administration that doesn't really respect process um, and the way that that usually past administrations have, because the process of making a national security decision um, is basically just totally, totally broken. Um, And I think another myth is that the big news organizations get all the best stories. The Times, the Post, the, the CNN, no doubt these guys get a lot of great stories. Um, but And I'm not just saying this because I work for Politico, uh, but there are a, there's a lot of fabulous reporting that goes on at trade publications, um, smaller outlets that often, frankly, the, the bigger outlets don't credit, even though they're basically ripping them off. So if you really want to like 
understand and learn and figure out and be ahead when it comes to national security issues. Like you need to have a much wider um, group of news organizations that you look at. Uh, And one way, luckily, that we've been able to kind of help people with that is newsletters that Mm -hmm. aggregate some of these things and and point to different um, news organizations that break certain things that often, you know, don't get the kind of treatment that the big papers give them. Uh, I'm very paper minded, <laughs> like, cause that's kind of my background. I, I don't have a broadcast or radio background. Um, but I do think that that's, it, it's worth noting. And again, let's not forget that it was Knight Ritter that did the real yeah. work in, in the Iraq run up. And they were the ones who were sounding the alarm. Like this, this isn't necessarily accurate, this weapons of mass destruction thing, but not enough people were paying attention because they were, you know, caught in the headlights uh, caught in the McClatchy the glare. Yeah. yeah was it Mc- no well it was Knight Ritter at the time yeah and then right. it became McClatchy yes yeah. and now it's gone bankrupt now it's gone um, a couple of things so a, a lot of people say oh open records you know FOIA FOIA the information um, the FOIA system is broken uh, especially on national security especially at the State Department um, I I mean, it takes years and years and years to get any response from the State Department on a FOIA request. It's just not really it's, – it's deeply frustrating. And I recently went to the investigative reporters and editors conference, and I asked for advice from a, a big investigative reporter. I was like, yeah, you know, like, so I cover state, and I don't know how to deal with the FOIA thing. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I can't help you. Like, that, it's an impossible – it's an impossible zone. Um, and so one of the things they told us was, well – Ask for the FOIA log, right? That's the list of things people have previously FOIA'd so that, you know, you could just say, hey, I want that thing you already produced. It could save them time. So I went to the State Department and I said, hey, can I have your FOIA log? And they were like, oh, yeah, you have to FOIA that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So the, the good news under Trump is that there are a lot more people willing to talk. Um, within weeks, I mean, people were people were losing their minds. I, I wrote this great uh, – well, yeah. Okay, look, it was great. Okay. I wrote a great story <laughs> um, uh, called Inside the Chaotic Early Days of Trump's Foreign Policy. And it basically charted, like, what was happening at the National Security Council the first few months. And, I mean, I re- read the story because it will shock you. Um, but again, like my initial example showed where this guy from the state department is like, please, you have to take this. Um, he did that because there were people in the white house who could not, they were in a much more sensitive position and could not talk directly to the media. So what they were doing was they were pushing out the information Mm -hmm. in, they weren't saying, Hey, go leak this to your reporter friend. They were like, Hey, we think you should know about (laughs) this because it might be coming down the pike. And so people in the agencies were like, Oh man. And so the hope was we have to get this out to the public somehow. They copied agencies in part because they knew agencies um, material was FOIAable the White House information is not. Um, so this was – there were these maneuvers, these tricks they were trying to do within just weeks to try to get the information out there. Um, and so it's been kind of amazing. I mean like – I mean people who in the past when I was covering foreign policy under, under Obama would never talk to me. I mean would not even consider talking to me would like reach out to me out of nowhere, like, hey, so uh, you want to get coffee? Hey, we should really uh, get to know each other. And I'd be like, sure, you know, director of, you know, this is, I'm making this one up, but, you know, director of Lebanon or whatever. I I will definitely have coffee with you. Um, It was, it was, it's been a glorious time in a lot of ways. Um, And my favorite, (laughs) and, and I mean, sometimes I don't know how people like, find my number. I actually don't like post my number and I'm kind of careful because, you know, I'm a female and you can get a lot of abuse and stuff. But, but my impression is, it's kind of like the whole book, you know, he's just not that into you. The whole idea that like, if he really wants you, he will track you down. Like, I'm like, (laughs) if it's a good story, the stores won't find me. It usually works. It doesn't work for me in my dating life, but you know, like in terms of journalism, like it's, you know, people, people find me and I am, you know, they can reach me through LinkedIn or whatever. Um, and like recently, I 
<laughs> but sometimes you can't you, you can't get them always to talk. I wrote this story about how this um, ambassador, this was an, an anecdote within the story, this political appointee ambassador to Spain wanted to somehow ship his polo ponies to Spain. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is and like he was talking about how hard this was because of all the EU regulations and the career ambassadors were like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is insane. And then I got this text later because his people would not tell me if if the ponies were ever shipped. And then we got this t- tip later, like the ponies were shipped. You know? <laughs> and I like reached out to the tipster just to try to figure out who they were, you know, everything, but he never got back to me. So if he sees this, I still want to talk about that. <laughs> um, another favorite one was um, I was covering Tillerson pretty intensely and um, I had all these plans, like I was going to do more Intel coverage, you know, I had all this stuff. And then the State Department went into meltdown under mm-hmm. Tillerson. Um, and so I was covering him like pretty intensely and somebody sent in a tip about just trying to describe this bizarre like something about contracts and private, you know, and the redesign of the State Department. It was just this like completely bizarre thing. And at the end of it, it just said, Nahal will understand. Tell Nahal. So I reach out to the guy. He meets me. He has me meet him at the FDR memorial <laughs> in the dark, in the freezing weather. <laughs> he comes. His head is like wrapped in a scarf. And, like, with this thick stack of documents, you know, and he, like, goes through. He won't even tell me who he is. He goes through the documents with me. And he told me to bring those little, like, sticky things, like, that kind of mark. And I was like, okay, I'm freezing. And he's explaining all this stuff, but none of it makes any sense to me because it's all, like, complicated contract. I mean, it was bizarre. But I took the material, pretended I knew what I was doing. And then I, like, you know, went and took it to, like, experts and and had them vetted. And so I got this great story about how Rex Tillerson had spent $12 million on um, private contractors to help him redesign the State Department in a project that never ended up leading to anything, all while demanding budget cuts, you know, for the department itself and putting a hiring freeze. And, you know, so, but these things, I mean... It was it was amazing, and it's a situation now where you know you can turn your critics into your sources. A lot of folks who feel like I'm too hard on the administration, they they attack me, and then I reach out to them, and I'm like, hey, let's go have coffee, let's talk about this, because I do want to be a fair journalist. And so, one thing I find is a lot of people like they they don't necessarily like think that they don't necessarily expect you to put some false equivalence in the story, but they want their side to be heard. And like, oftentimes, it's the Trump administration people like they're like, look, this program we're doing was totally mischaracterized. Can you please, you know, here's here's the way we're thinking. And when you talk to them, it it is, it is often rational, and it makes sense. And when you realize, and, and I think that that's really, really important, because I do think there is this kind of very much an anti Trump, you know, sentiment, mm-hmm. um, in a lot of places, especially on social media. And so, you know, sometimes people blow like the small thing out of proportion and it's not, it's not entirely fair. And so I, I do try very hard to be fair, but I'm also never going to like, you know, be one of those people who says, oh yeah, you know, like flat, the earth is flat. Okay. I mean, I'm just not, I'm, you know, at the end of the day, you have to call BS where it is. One place, one thing that I've found really fascinating under the Trump administration is they're trying to weaponize off the record. Mm -hmm. Okay. So basically what they'll do is they'll go, they'll, they will go off the record. They'll try to go off the record to say no comment. (laughs) That is not a thing. And this is a hill I am willing to die on. Okay. I have gotten into yelling matches like with people from the National Security Council who tried to go off the record to say no comment. I was like, no, I'm not going to, no, that's not a thing, you know? <laughs> and, and they're like, you can, they're like, you can just write, you know, that we didn't get back to you. But that's a lie. I wouldn't write that. Um, screaming matches, like in the newsroom, after which the newsroom gave me a standing ovation. But, you know, they, this, or they try to go off the record to refer you to another agency. And I'm like, no. And like this happened recently. The White House referred me to state. The State Department tried to go off the record to refer me to the White House. Like it was this circular thing. Happens a lot. And I was just like, I don't accept off the record referrals. And I just, you know, I just don't. Um, so I, I will say I do worry about kind of what comes next um, if Trump is reelected. But why? I mean, people don't don't take that out of context. What I worry about in terms of is, is in terms of journalism, because I do think um, you know, more and more people are going to be fearful about speaking out. 
Um, she's, you know, they're the, a lot of the people who I think are willing to talk now have have are, are leaving uh, or they will leave if Trump is reelected. I think the people who are left either, you know, will like completely refine with the, with the agenda. But also, I just think they'll be scared and they'll be, um, you know, worried about their families, their paychecks, that sort of thing. Um, but I also do hope that, you know, these muscles that we've developed as journalists over the past three years, um, that will that will, they will help us, like, you know, be strong in our coverage and we continue to try to hold this administration accountable um, whenever possible. And if it's a new administration, hold them accountable. I tell a lot of my sources who a lot of them happen to be like Obama folks and I, I make it very clear to them, hey, this relationship is going to continue even if a Democrat wins office, right? And if you think for a second that we're going to take it easy on you, you're out of your mind because the last three years have been an education for us journalists. Hmm. Um, and we are definitely going to hold your feet to the fire. So I shall end on that. Uh-huh. <laughs> good, good, good. Very good end point. Um, <laughs> Let me uh, take the privilege before I throw this out to the um, uh, audience for questions um, to ask you about the decision-making process in the NSC. I mean, it's one of the things that really strikes me about this administration, a kind of radicalism of method Mm -hmm. that you had this decision-making process that really dates from 1947 from the National Security Act in which all the bureaucracies – have a seat at the table. The interagency process. Exactly. Yeah. And all of all the information is supposed to go together to make for a good decision, and then it's supposed to be imposed outward. And am I right in uh, assuming what you're really telling us is that what we see is true, which is that that process is being completely circumvented? They're not using it. Right. So early on, basically, there was no process. I mean, there were virtually the, the, the what were known as principals committee meetings and deputies committee meetings and um, uh, PCCs. Uh, I can't remember what that stands for. Um, policy coordinating committee meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, they kind of weren't really happening. Or when they were, they just didn't matter. Uh, for instance, um, you know, they – the the decision to authorize our military to be able to carry out more operations in Yemen was made by President Trump basically over dinner with like mm-hmm. I think was the Japanese prime minister there time I can't remember it was some like something he just was like oh yeah this is fine he did it you know over dinner with a couple of generals and everything and then the next day you know senior people at the NSC hear about this and they're like what are you talking about we haven't even put that through the system yet um, and then they decide to hold a deputies committee meeting and people are like, why are we even doing this if the president's already made the decision, right? So this was happening. There, there weren't meetings. And then, you know, McMaster came in. He put the process in place. And so there were these meetings, but it didn't matter because Jared Kushner had his own process he was running. Stephen Miller had his own process he was running. Um, The president was talking to outside advisors, and he had his own views on what he wanted to do about everything. So even if McMaster went to him with a recommendation that came through this process, it didn't really really matter. Mm -hmm. Um, Bolton took over, and he, uh, John Bolton, after McMaster, and he didn't, the process basically fell apart again. He hardly held any principles committee meetings. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a, I'll tell you guys a funny story later. But I mean, like, he didn't really hold those. There were deputy committee meetings, but they, it, it just didn't matter because effectively it was Bolton doing whatever he wanted with the president and all these other processes simultaneously happening. What I'm told now is that, yes, there, there continue to be these, like, processes. But again, you have these side things happening. Jared's doing his own thing. Rudy Giuliani is doing his own thing. Um, And it's, I think part of it was simply, frankly, when President Trump took over, I don't think he really understood or knew how the NSC worked. I don't think his people knew that. And I'm not judging them. I mean, a lot of people, I think these guys had no experience. So I mean, you you wouldn't expect them to necessarily Mm -hmm. know. But it's also just not really his style. He kind of goes on gut. Um, but that also means that there's, you know, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. The State Department has no clue that this is happening. The, the, the DOD, like, they don't know what to do, so they refer you to each other. It, it's, mm-hmm. So it's when they take a decision like killing Soleimani, for example, mm-hmm. which could have all sorts of consequences in a lot of different realms, the various bureaucracies simply are not involved in that decision. 
Right. I mean, they're, they basically, like, I, I don't know specifically about the Soleimani case, so I don't, mm-hmm. I, I, I want to be careful on that. But I mean, just generally speaking, like, they're just not in the loop. And part of the reason you want to have these meetings is because they end up resulting in documents that are like action memos that they send out to the various agencies so that people know what is going to happen and what the talking points even are. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, they just, oftentimes things happen and it's only a small cadre of people who really know what happened. Maybe Pompeo, maybe a couple mm-hmm. of others, but partly because of leaks, you know. So I it mean, means there's no real record also. Yeah. And one of my, one of the questions I'm going to have, and I, I don't know how we'll ever know this except, you know, in the decades from now is like how much paper record there really is of any of this mm-hmm. um and you gotta remember this is all stuff that we are able to know there's a lot of stuff happening that's classified that nobody's re- reporting because we just don't we can't mm-hmm. get access to it you did remark earlier yeah. that uh so many uh guardrails have been passed and uh, institutional degradation and so on things could collapse but i wonder what what would that look like as distinct from what's happening? I mean, I'm always fascinated. I remember being in Haiti once talking to a diplomat and riots were going on in the streets and people were being burned and people were starving and there was no gas. And the diplomat said, you know, if this gets any worse, things could collapse here. <laughs> and I remember hearing this voice say, what would that look like? You know, and it, it was me, you know. So what what would constitute a collapse? Um. I mean, uh, uh, a poor decision on a nuclear strike. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Well, I asked, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you want to be really careful, and that's not. I mean, that is something in theory that you know the president has has a lot of authority to just kind of do on his own. But mm-hmm. you know, the question of like whether the intelligence is getting to him in time i mean yeah that's a possibility Mm -hmm. i say that with very very careful thinking well on that happy note (laughs) i think i'll uh throw this open to uh questions from from the floor do we have a do we have a microphone we do yes questions i answered all your questions wow incredible Okay. Yes, ma'am. Um, on the event that uh, hopefully Trump doesn't get reelected or maybe he uh, kicks it over in his Kentucky Fried Chicken or something one day, um, <laughs> do you think it's going to be – how easy is it going to be for, like, uh, Bernie or Biden or whoever is next to, you know, put all this right again? Or is that just – are we done with uh, – is it going to be chaos from now on? Or I mean, how do we get these institutions back? Um. Look, you know, if you look at like one parallel, it was um, under George W. Bush, you know, the second half of his the second term, there was a lot of like, you know, um, unhappiness with his government. His approval rating was terrible. Uh, But then what you saw, you know, was that Obama came in and there were a lot of people like Obama kind of inspired them to join government, to join the Foreign Service. You know, I mean, there there is that possibility that people will. Um, feel like, you know, now is my time to, like, join or stay. That's the other thing is, you know, whether people want to stay. Um, but it is going to take – look, I think I think it's easier than some people might think, but harder than some people might know, right? You can reinstitute a series of meetings, right? If you plan in advance far enough you can have a slate of nominees Mm -hmm. you know the the first day you're you take office you can already i mean you know for everything um i can tell you that i I wrote a story about this like democrats are already really worried about how this transition is going to go if there is a transition they're already making plans for how they will deal with the possibility of 
Trump administration people not being helpful to them, not giving them records, possibly destroying records. I mean, they're they're thinking very like expansively. They're making lists of career government officials deep into the bureaucracy that they can turn to because they feel like they are more reliable um, sources than political appointees who they worry will not tell them everything that's going on. Um, so I know that there's a lot of planning happening, um, you know, by outside groups in, in the event that the Democrats do win. Um, so there is like this effort to like fix these institutions. And I'm sure they're going to put out a call for service, like people come join us, come help us. There are plenty of people who are qualified who, you know, they can they can bring back. Um, and yeah, so I, I think it's, you know, I think it it is possible to make this more what it was. I think some Democrats say they want to build back better. I don't really know what that means. Um, but I, there is a lot of thought going into this. But there's also this question of like, you know, say Bernie wins. Like, he has a very radically different, actually, surprisingly, in some ways, not that radically different, but still different, you know, than, than Trump. Um, Biden would have a very radically different uh, view than Trump on everything from trade deals to, to whatever. Um, and so the question also, and I have to write a story about this at some point, is just like, how much do you want to swing back? Because do you really want to set up a system where every time there's a new administration, that there's this like back and forth? Mm-hmm. So like one example, and, and I know some Democrats, even some very progressive, thoughtful, like, you know, very leftist, anti-Trump Democrats, they are aware of this. And one example is the decision to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in Israel, Right. You know, already a lot of these, the Dems say, you know what, we're not reversing that. We're just Mm going to leave it there. What's done is done. Um, And because they feel like if they do, if they move it back, then the next Republican administration will move. It's just they just don't want to. They want to have some stability on the foreign policy front. Um, So they're going to be looking for places where I think they can, um, you know, stay stable because you don't want to have a system where like the international community is like, oh my God, you know, we're going to have radical changes every time there's a new administration. After uh, George W. Bush left, people expected Obama might prosecute people who had been involved in torture, for example. Mm. And uh, none of that was done. I mean, he didn't do a lot of things that people expected. And it, it occurs to me that uh, when it comes to things that increase the pres- president's power, very rarely does the next administration step back with that. In fact, they use it. Yeah. And I wonder if that will be the consequence, even if there is a democratic transition. I think a lot of that is going to come down to who's in Congress and how mm-hmm. Congress asserts, asserts itself. I mean, a lot of people like to blame the president, whoever's the president. Oh, you're amassing all this power. Well, it's partly because Congress... Mm-hmm. You know, lets him. Lets him. I mean, a classic example is um, Obama and Syria, right? So Obama doesn't want to strike Syria after chemical attacks uh, blamed on the Assad regime, or he th- he he says it's a red line, so people think he's going to do it, and then he's like, you know what? I'm going to put this to Congress. Mm-hmm. You know, and guess what? Congress wasn't willing to take a vote on it. People forget that part, right? Right. And it's like, guys, don't you want to, you know, I mean, Congress, there's the authorization for use of military force. And there are some Congress folks who are like, let's let's renew it or get rid of the old one. And they, they just can't because they don't no. want to take these votes. So, I mean, look, I, you, Congress, they have only really themselves to blame on, on some extent on some of this. And I mm-hmm. think that's it'll be really interesting, like if, it, if there's a Democratic president, but like a Republican controlled senator or, or both houses and how they will suddenly start to really care about executive power mm-hmm. again the way they did under Obama. <laughs> yeah. The authorization of the use of military force that Holly mentioned dates from September 2001. And all of these wars are being fought under that authority. Uh, you know, it's a completely untenable situation. And yet there it is. There it is. Questions? Yeah, I I do have a I I'm curious about the the big picture. Uh, we're so taken with the with Trump's temperament, his the way he governs by caprice. He governs by peak. He he gets angry. He he does things that don't seem to have any particular rhyme or reason, apart from the fact that somebody's goaded him on from Fox News. 
But if you pull the camera back and ask, well, what is the coherence? What is American foreign policy under Trump? What is security policy under Trump? And, and, and what is the case you could make that it constitutes a coherent reimagining of America in the world? And, and if, if so, if you were to make that case, weeding out all of these weirdnesses about Trump's personality and the way he governs uh, and the way he's, sac- he's basically uh, abandoned fairly well-established and thoughtful procedures that were in place. But what is America in the world under Trump? How does it differ from what it was in the world under Obama, and how is it likely to be changed back? So I think a lot of things still remain the same, despite the president's rhetoric mm-hmm. and you know some of the administration's rhetoric. We haven't left NATO. You know, we haven't quit the U.N., Um, You could even argue that Trump has actually strengthened NATO because he's like forced the other countries um, to do more than they probably would have done despite whatever Obama like, you know, got them to agree to. I mean, you could argue that he's been um, a force for strengthening that alliance in that sense. Um, Now, so I I do think that sometimes their, their rhetoric is just much more harsh than, than the reality, even even like his cozying up to uh, Putin, for instance. We still have a ton of sanctions on Putin. We've actually imposed more under Trump, though that was thanks to Congress in part. Um, we, we, you know, our policies are not always that different. I would say, though, that like the real difference is like America, in a way, in a way, it's more honest, you know, about it's what it cares about and what it doesn't under Trump. I mean, the in the past, you know, there was more lip service to like issues like human rights in places like Saudi Arabia, and they at least tried to maintain the facade that you know we cared about those issues, etc. This administration is much more honest. They're just like, yeah, we sell them a lot of weapons, so sorry, you know, like to the human rights people, um, and like so, it, but but it's really the same policy <laughs> that like any previous administration would have done. Um, I feel like the honesty is there. I feel like the there's a, it's a more transactional America. Um, I think people uh, from other countries are like, okay, well, the only way we can get them to um, do what we want is if we give them something that they want. Uh, they view they have kind of a Hobbesian view of the world. You know, this administration does like they're like we're there's you know there's no such thing as like the the greater good. It's, it's like it's like mm-hmm. every country for themselves. Um, and so that's that's a frustration, I think, for a lot of our allies in particular. Like, they're just like, no, like, you know, working together makes us stronger. And Trump doesn't believe that. He thinks our allies are treating us worse than our adversaries. Um, but at the same time, you could argue that, like, maybe we do need to push them a little more to carry a little more of the burden in a lot of places in the world than just relying on the Americans to come and rescue them every time. Um, I... I don't know. So, I mean, I do think, though, one thing is they do feel like America is simply not going to be there for them the way that it once was. And I think that – and I know that they feel this way even if Bernie becomes president, even if Warren becomes president. Like, for a lot of the Dems are not that different from Trump when it comes to this idea of, you know, you guys need to step up a bit. Um, Biden, I think, would be kind of a throwback. Uh, But, yeah, but even then, I just think they feel like America is just – more out for her own self-interest in a more honest way. And that's, I think they kind of are counting on that to continue. Just to pick up that point, I mean, these assertions of principle, obviously they always were a little bit hollow and they were always carefully tempered in practice by self-interest. But that doesn't mean they were trivial. I mean, they were assertions of principle, and they were rallying points, and they were – you could get traction, policy traction by invoking them. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's something so – there's something so cynical about their just, just flagrant abandonment that we're not even going to make believe that we care about the Saudis murdering a journalist. Mm-hmm. We, we're not even going to pretend we care. And, and surely something is lost in that under that regime it's something of real value is lost and and people in the discourse about diplomacy and the purposes of diplomacy is altered in a very fundamental way under that it would seem to me i mean you could argue one thing that's lost is america um being a role model 
You know, I mean, how can the U.S. argue about, um, you know, how another country treats migrants when when we've basically ended the practice of asylum in this country? Um, how can we lecture the Chinese on what they're doing to Uyghur Muslims when, I mean, you know. So <laughs> um, I, I think the the case of China is like a really interesting example um, because they can just keep pointing to these hypocrisies and saying like, you don't get to tell us anything, you know? And, and, and so, yeah, I mean this, we lose that kind of moral force in a sense. And so we're kind of like becoming like the world that, that they think we are every man for himself and 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 it didn't not necessarily have to be that way. Uh, China's an interesting example because the Trump administration makes a really big deal. Uh, Pompeo, in particular, President Trump himself doesn't, but Pompeo, in particular, makes a big deal about um, like the Uyghur Muslims situation in in China and the human rights concerns there. And it's really striking because one thing I notice: um, he often doesn't mention they're Muslims. He just says they're Uyghurs, right? I found that interesting. Um, then, and, and when he bashes them on it, and, and then when you ask the administration, well, why don't you care about human rights? And they're like, look, we care about Muslims here. Look at the Uyghurs. Yeah, but you didn't do anything about the Rohingya, you know, in, in Myanmar. You're not saying anything about what India is doing to the Muslims. So why are they going after this Muslim issue in China? Well, because they're trying to go after China. So... To them, it's like this is an adversary, and so therefore we will use every stick available to beat them with, um, even if it risks us being called hypocritical on every other front. (laughs) But they just assume people won't notice. I notice, but they just assume people won't notice, and it gives them a certain level of cover. Um, And in China also, I should add, like one reason they're making a big deal of religious freedom in China um, is because they care about Christians in China. And how they are being oppressed as well. So that helps them politically. I uh, I just want to add that I think the dean has a real point that there are policy consequences uh, for this. I mean, you've just made that point, obviously. But um, Khashoggi, I mean, it's uh, crazy to pretend if that had happened under another administration that that administration would have broken relations with the Saudis. They wouldn't have, but they would have withdrawn the ambassador. There would have been a period, a a winter period of relations between the countries. There would have been arms deals that would have been put on hold. Possibly the crown prince would have lost his job. There would have been consequences. And the consequences mean that it wouldn't happen again and that other people wouldn't do it. There's a way of enforcing of norms that has gone away completely. So these things aren't just for show at all, I don't think. Uh, I think they have uh, real consequences. And the other issue, of course, with the alliances is, was there, I mean, it, it seems to me there are two things that matter with the alliances beyond simple supplying troops, a few troops in Germany. Uh, one is um, uh, the reliability that the United States would protect what are now far-flung areas of NATO that are not protectable, which were dumb decisions. <coughs> and the other was a kind of moral agreement on what we're doing as nations. And the moral agreement part, it's kind of over, I think. And the reliability, I'm not so sure. It's, it's actually really <coughs> interesting because so often Trump administration policies like clash with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, like he, um, yeah, so he's trashing our allies, right? But if you really want to take on China, it would be great to have Europe in your corner, mm-hmm. right? But now yeah. you can't even get the Europeans to get rid of Huawei. I mean, it, it, it's – yeah. So it's – there's a lot of they, – they undermine themselves over and over. I wrote a whole story about how their immigration policy just often just completely clashes with other policies. Um, it's, Gee, they should have a national security council that would coordinate <laughs> these things. Oh, but see <laughs> – then we have to do a whole lecture about Stephen Miller and uh-huh. how he circumvented mm-hmm. that process. Question? Well, that's a, a good segue. Oh, okay. That's a good segue to my, my question. I wanted to ask about immigration. 
And in fact, is this on? Yeah. I can hear you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, the because you started out talking about being so incredulous, feeling so incredulous about the Muslim ban, like this can't be. And yet, day after day, what we see is undermining the rule of law with regard to immigration. I mean, Trump has broken every law that I can think of, sending people back to Guatemala, um, the Muslim ban, you know, barring certain, you know, religious discrimination and so forth. And I was wondering, what, how do you see the future of immigration policy after after this is over or even in the next four years. I mean, like, you, you sort of offhandedly said, you know, he's banning asylum. Um, and so, this, this really worries me, and not only because I'm worried about refugees daily, but that, that because, it undermine, because the rule of law is undermined every single time, how will this affect other policies where they are breaking the law willy-nilly? Great, great question. Um, well, I would actually, uh, so look, obviously there are some cases where the courts have stepped in and said, no, you can't do this or whatever, but they're actually scoring a lot of wins too on that front. So I don't know if they're necessarily technically um, breaking a lot of laws. <laughs> I know it sounds kind of weird, but partly, partly I think it's because you're assuming that they're going to agree or to follow international law or respect international law. But the reality is like, we don't. <laughs> Right. I mean, yeah. So that's how they framed it originally. Um, well, as you say, they've kind of, in effect, ended asylum. Yes. Which Congress, so far as I know, didn't didn't end. But. Well, yeah. But it's all about, like, regulation versus law, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the genius of Stephen Miller is that he, like, knows immigration regulations, like, like everything. I mean, it, it's it's astonishing. So w- they have like used everything they possibly can to make it harder to get immigration here, basically through changes in regulations or how they define a, or interpret a particular law. Um, so some of it may be illegal, but as we found with the travel ban, um, it started out clearly deeply problematic. By the time it got to the Supreme Court, it was the third iteration of it, and they had made it fit mm-hmm. within the law. I mean, there's no doubt that the executive has a ton of ton of control over immigration policy. Nobody denies that. Um, and again, Congress just doesn't step up, right? Right. So, so I mean, one of the the, the public charge. Um, you know, changes. This basically is um, making it a lot harder for people to become citizens, legal immigrants, to become citizens. Uh, if people in the immigration system like decide that in the future they could become a public, um, you know, drain on public resources. So it's, but the way that they are defining it is like if you've ever used like food stamps or if you've ever. It's it's so oh one of the things that counts against you is if you apply for citizenship, it, but they can do that. I mean, they they have a lot of leeway in this particular administration. Um, the real wall that they're building is through these regulations. It's not the wall on the border. It's making it harder for people to come here, either even for visit or to immigrate here from Nigeria. I mean, one of the I think one of the great like obvious like hypocrisies of this administration was when they recently expanded the travel ban, right? Adding a bunch of countries like Nigeria, et cetera. And I broke the story on like, like I found out which countries they were going to add or planning on adding. Um, And what was astonishing about it was they added these countries and they said this was for national security reasons, people from these countries. But in several of the cases, they did not ban tourists, they did not ban the people who were coming here on non-immigrant visas from these countries like Nigeria. They just banned their ability to become 
immigrants to this country and end up being citizens here. So it's like, well, if you want to, if you want to, if you have a national security reasons, don't you want to leave out the guys who come on a tourist visa? They didn't even pretend. I mean, this was just like, <laughs> they didn't even wow. pretend. It was just so, you know, that's kind of where we've gotten. And um, it's, uh, so I, I don't know if I answered your question, except, but, but I will say this, look, a lot of the stuff is reversible and fairly quickly. I mean, I would, I know that Democrats are already planning like a mm-hmm. slew. There are people who are keeping track of this. They're like, these are like the 20 executive orders you need to sign on your first day to reverse a lot of this stuff. Um, some of the stuff they might want to keep, you know, I mean, uh, frankly, the um, birth tourism thing, I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with that on both sides. The idea that like people come here just to have their babies, mm-hmm. you know, and get that privilege of citizenship. Um, but, but, and I, and I, and I cannot, and I know it's not normal, but like, I cannot stress enough how much it is Stephen Miller driving these policies. It is, I've never seen one single person get this amount of, um, control over an issue. It is, it is, it is something people will study. I think we have time for one more question. One more concisely stated Highly necessary, <laughs> brilliantly shaped question. That's a lot of pressure. And I also just wanted to stop talking about Stephen Miller. So <laughs> I wonder if you could, um, okay, just, well, I had two questions. I'll make it one. Can you just talk about what it's like to be a woman covering politics in 2020? Oh, um, I mean, I think it's awesome. Um, <laughs> I I mean, I've always, it's it's been very rare in my career that I have found that being a woman is a disadvantage. I've usually found it to be an advantage. It gives me access to people that a lot of the guys don't get access to. And, you know, people who underestimate you, they pretty quickly learn their lesson. And the next time they don't underestimate you. Um, they, <laughs> uh, you know, one of my, the greatest things that happened to me was like, um, you know, I, I broke the story early on about this career government official who was basically you know, being kicked out of her position because of conservative media attacks on her. And they had targeted her basically because she was of Iranian descent, even though she was born in America. And they accused her of being, you know, a mole in an Iranian regime. It was totally wild and insane. Um, and because of that story, it led to a bunch of stuff, including a whistleblower thing and then an IG report and all this stuff. And along the way, there were these emails that were uncovered. And in it, like, there was all these discussions about my questions about this. And the State Department official was like, she isn't one to back down. Like, you know, and I was like, yeah. And I put that in my Twitter bio. Um, but, but no, I mean, look, I have found that like, it's, it's pretty cool. Like I, I, I just, I haven't found it to be an issue. I think where, um, I, I've, I'm, I'm just one of those people who honestly feels like, you know, if you, if you make it an issue, it will become an issue. But if you just like, pretend it's not even an issue like people will be like oh cool yeah we'll talk to you um and but more more most importantly is simply like proving yourself so like fine you don't want to talk to me this time here's the story i wrote next time you're gonna talk to me aren't you yeah okay um i i don't know i mean i know maybe other people have had different issues like i i don't know i've been very fortunate like i don't get sexually harassed not in this country overseas for some reason yeah but like you know, I, I've just kind of avoided some of those things. Um, and I'm told, like, well, it's because they know you won't put up with it. So, yeah, I, I don't know. But I've, I've been lucky. So, and you said you had one more question? or Well, if I, if I have time, could you talk a little bit about your coverage of the Rohingya and um, also just how that, you know, such a um, major human rights and humanitarian crisis and now um, maybe we're not even talking about it anymore, but what... Yeah, I mean, it's like it was the hardest story I've ever written. It was it required me to um, travel to Myanmar and Bangladesh. But a lot of the reporting was actually done in Washington. Um, I didn't want to repeat the other stories that people had already written about, like just simply it being a humanitarian disaster. I think that was abundantly clear. Um, Although, man, when you're there, it is you just it's something else. I focused a lot of it on the policy decisions made under Obama and whether the U.S. kind of missed this and whether it could could have done more to stop it. Um, I didn't personally make any – draw any final conclusions because I felt like that's up to the reader. And I also 
realized it was actually a very complicated thing. I kind of went in thinking, oh, it's they should have blah, blah, blah. And by the end of it, I'm like, I really don't know because foreign policy is often about making decisions between, you know, something terrible and something even worse. Um, emotionally, it was very, very trying. Uh, it was very hard. Um the writing was something I'm not a magazine writer and so this was very much a new experience for me to to do this type of reported magazine story it was very informative and really I'm I'm glad but I also learned that I don't want to be a magazine writer (laughs) like this is I learned that like I really just love you know I love being in the daily conversation I love writing regularly I love seeing my byline and I don't mind doing a magazine piece now and then but I cannot like psychologically I cannot go from one big project to another big project it's like I will get ulcers I will just lose my hair (laughs) Um, so I don't know how you do it um, although my ed- editor was like, well, the thing about most magazine writers is they're incapable of writing a story in a single day. <laughs> so um, so it true. was it was really good. And I will say, like, you know, I, I was like this would, will no doubt be the peak of my career. But I was um, a finalist for the National Magazine Award for the story in, in the reporting category. And when I got that news, I burst into tears and I cried all day long. But I mean, partly it was because I felt like I felt like. I had not really helped anyone. I mean, this was the thing. I was like, I couldn't, I was like, I would give every single bit of this stuff if I just helped one Rohingya kid. Um, but, you know, it was, what I do hope is that maybe future policymakers will read that piece and, like, take away something from it that will affect them and how they make policy in the future on these issues. Um, and I do know, like, there's, like, one Arab ambassador who, like, basically forces, like, everybody he meets to like read the story because it's like see this is what it's like to, to deal with the u.s um so yeah it was interesting i hope you guys all get a chance to look at it and read it and and read the inside the chaotic early days of trump's foreign policy piece mm-hmm. too that one i think you'll enjoy and and be terrified by it, so. i i definitely would second that that uh people should read the rohingya piece because it's a kind of model of a piece about a horrible thing that happened uh, that you want to blame on someone and the deeper you get into the issues involved and the more honest you are and how you talk to people and what their issues were at the time and so on, the more complicated it becomes. And you finish the piece with nobody really to blame except the killers themselves. And uh, it's very uh, frustrating in that way. It's very uh, alarming in that way. Uh, but it's also a model of a great piece of journalism and, you know, the kind of stuff that we'd like our graduates, obviously, to be able to accomplish. So I'm extremely grateful. Can I just say, though, like, so a few months after, I mean, more than a year or so after I wrote that piece, um, I read Mark Danner's piece on the truth of El Mozote. And it was because I was going to be like dealing with Elliot Abrams more. And, you know, I was like, I should find out what happened. And then I read this piece and I'm like, oh, my God, this is incredible. (laughs) Like I was just in complete awe of your work. And and I mean, one of the things that you wrote in that piece that really stuck with me was you you talked about this woman who who was a witness to what happened. Mm -hmm. And she was she had a young young child and you you mentioned that she as she was waiting her breasts filled with milk and that was like like i i just was like that is incredible i was like who is this man i must get to you know one day reach out to him if i ever have the bravery um and then luckily this happened and i was like (laughs) well i'm very i'm very glad it did i'm very glad you came here and thank you for those comments and i'm bound to Thank uh, the uh, Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, uh, the Goldman School of Public Policy, uh, the Institute of Governmental Affairs. And um, I hope all of you would just join me in thanking uh, Nahal Tusi for coming to talk to us tonight. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.